When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there, Brandon Harvey here. I want to stop for a second before we start the show to say that I have really, really exciting news. Issue 5 of the Good Newspaper, our print newspaper filled with good news, is finally here. The Good 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 team and I could not be more excited for you to see what is inside. Honestly, we are hopeful, we're tired, we're full, and we're still in shock that we've been creating this newspaper filled with good news for over a year now. We hope that this new issue reminds you that you are not alone in your desire to find the good in the world. The Good Newspaper is a quarterly print newspaper that celebrates the people, ideas, and movements that are changing the world for the better and equips you to take action on the issues that matter to you. It's often when we as a people get to the end of our rope that we find that someone is still fighting to make a difference, still persevering no matter the time, circumstance, or political climate. Those are the stories we share in the newspaper. Issue 5 is dedicated to telling the stories of the people, ideas, and movements that have not given up on making a difference in the world. Inside our newest issue, we include stories of journalists saving democracy, Mormons showing up to support LGBTQ youth, Nigerian heroes, inclusion in the intimate apparel sector, and the global eradication of polio. And uniquely in this issue... We also give a good news story on how to plan a wedding that's ethical, environmentally friendly, and gives back. Don't miss out on all of the real messy hope inside our newest issue. Be among the first to pre-order issue 5 of the Good Newspaper. Just go to goodnewspaper.co or click the link in our show notes. Okay, now here comes the show. Most notably recognized as one of the most beloved figures from The Bachelor, season 20 for anybody keeping track, Ben Higgins is someone who is currently leveraging his platform of fame for good. The kind of good that has sparked real, meaningful, sustainable, and hopeful change in the world. And before we get too deep into this, I do have to confess, I gotta be honest, that when I started this podcast three years ago, I never expected that I would have a pop icon, a public figure like Ben on this podcast. For example, I just Googled his name really quick to check something before recording this, and there were like 10 articles written about him in the last few days from places like People, Us Weekly, Hollywood Life. Oh my gosh, it's crazy. This is not kind of my normal shtick on the podcast, especially because I don't watch The Bachelor. I don't watch The Bachelorette. Okay, sometimes with my wife. But anyway... I can honestly say that this is one of my favorite conversations yet because it surprised me and challenged me in ways that I did not expect it to. Here's how this podcast episode came to be. So Ben and I both found ourselves at the same conference in the same city, Plywood Presents, in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, just a few weeks ago. And I was absolutely floored by Ben's story and how it's currently unfolding. Ben has spent years of his life living into the question of how he could use his fame and unique platform for something bigger than himself. And nothing could have adequately prepared him for how appearing on one of the highest grossing television shows would ultimately pave the way for him to accomplish his humanitarian dreams with an organization called Humanity and Hope United and his new company, Generous. Both of these exciting initiatives you're going to hear about more in our conversation today. And we also talked a lot about travel, the nuanced burden of fame, dating, the Enneagram, our deepest fears. (laughs) This one's a good one. Wild stories about Peruvian rescue zoos and getting angry about the things that matter. And also, of course, so much more. I am Brendan Harvey, and this is Sounds Good. This is the weekly podcast where we have conversations with inspiring people who are rejecting cynicism and using their lives to make an impact. 
Sounds Good is not your typical three steps to success podcast. We don't host this podcast for the sake of leaving you with bullet points on self-improvement. We deeply believe that our lives are more complex than that. So we show up here on Sounds Good to ask big questions, dive into nuance, and learn from each other's stories. I'm so excited about this conversation with Ben. I had a blast, and I hope that it leaves you feeling less overwhelmed and more hopeful about humanity after listening. All right, here's the show. You and I are here at Plywood Presents, a cool conference focused on nonprofits and stuff, and that's why we're here in person in Atlanta together. I've never been to Plywoods. You've been traveling a lot. A ton, yeah. This is, I think I said the other day, it was like 70, this is my 70, like third trip. What? Of the year. Of the year? Like flight. So oh my segment. Gosh. It's getting a little ridiculous. Yeah. When was the last time you were home? Uh, I was just actually home. So here's good. a crazy thing. And, and please, nobody out there, f- feel bad for me. Don't feel bad. Life's, <laughs> life's really good. But I was just home for eight days straight, and it was the longest I have been home consecutively in what? Denver in two years. Wow. It's crazy. What, and when you're traveling, what's most of the stuff you're doing traveling? Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's changed, right? So uh, initially, uh, as of you know, a couple years ago, it was kind of relationship-based and, and press and media and Per, you know, we were not, Lauren and I were out in LA a bunch, uh, kind of promoting whatever projects we had going on. So yeah. we spent a lot of time in LA. Well, then it went into my job in software. So I worked for a software company for five years. Oh, got it. Um, in and out of all this craziness. I kept my job. And so I'd come back and try to, you know, work. And But my job. Were you working still like full time or mm-hmm. were, did you scale back a little bit? Uh, I would say I definitely scale back a bit. <laughs> uh, but I was full time and, wow. and I was uh, managing um, accounts for the software company. So I'd be traveling when I could to their locations. And so I made it all work by just traveling every week that I didn't have something else going on. Oh, then wow. I left that and, and, and I'm sure we'll dig into this, but now I operate a company called generous. Yeah. And now travel has to do with that promotion, cool. speaking, connecting people to that story. Uh, so kind of, you know, it's definitely taken its cycles and, and different rides and it's now kind of spitting out in this place where I hope five years from now, I'm still saying that generous is the reason I'm traveling and I've gotten a better hold of that. That's great. It's a little sporadic right now. Yeah, man. It's so interesting how that journey went, you know, it was basically full on bachelor and then back to almost a sense of normalcy in real life mm-hmm. and then back to something that you have a little bit more control on and that you're kind of creating. I want to bring it back a little bit because... I think a lot of us have a, a, a decent idea, you know, for those of us who follow you online, of what, you know, your life has looked like kind of post-bachelor, mid-bachelor. But I want to go back a little bit further and talk yeah. about your childhood. Like, tell me about you as a kid. Where did you grow up? Okay. So um, I grew up in Warsaw, Indiana. So okay. it is north central Indiana. It is a town of about 14,000. Okay. And the closest town to us of any size is 35 minutes away. So we are an isolated, wow. weird little community that we have five major orthopedic companies headquartered in this small town that's in the middle of cornfields. Super weird concept. And it also, <laughs> something that I think is interesting, and it's built like it, it for a long time was the uh, Methodist capital of the world. Really? Yeah. So you had uh, like Billy Sunday yeah. had, his, uh, had his home there. Um, Grace College, a pretty prominent. Did you grow up Methodist? I did. Okay. Of course you did. There we go. Yeah, yeah I mean, you have to. Which in the really capital. messes with you as you get older. It's like, wait, I was Methodist because everybody else in the community was yeah. Methodist. Yeah. So that's, you know. That is interesting. But, it, but um, and then I'm an only child. Uh, grew up to, in a great family. And then uh, went to Indian University. After Indian University, I moved to Peru. Um, Whoa. Okay. Wait. So this is speeding up fast. Okay. This is fascinating. Before we get to Peru, which I did not know about, I want to ask uh, what were kind of some of the pros and cons, the ups and downs, if you will, of growing up in kind of small town Midwest. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the one hard part today that I'm seeing is it's it's very Christian. Like mm. to not be a Christian is to be the minority. Interesting. And so for me now, it's kind of deconstructing the popular, you know, yeah, phrase. because it's built into your culture far more than it's a choice to hundred percent choose that. Yeah, yeah. You don't even need a real interaction with Jesus to know to want you know to claim to know Jesus, right? Yeah. So it was. It was the culture of the time. It was the cool thing that, unlike most places in the United States or in the world, it was the cool thing to do to be a Christian. Yeah. Um, so if you weren't, you were definitely on the outside looking in. That was one concept of living up, growing up in a small town. The other part, and one I appreciate dearly, is 
you know, in Indiana, we don't have a, a ton of options on entertainment. Hmm. So simplicity was uh, what we were content with. So nowadays, like getting bored isn't a familiar feeling to me. Yeah. I don't know if I've ever felt the feeling of boredom. I know what it would be like, but boredom isn't doesn't really exist, mostly because my I think my whole life was you're either going to be really bored all the time or you're going to find a way to entertain yourself. Exactly. So I that mean, was something. I grew up in a small little town too, and not I mean not quite as small, but fairly isolated still. And and it was really interesting because we had to find things to do. So sometimes an activity was like let's go to Walmart, mm-hmm. and then that activity would turn into well, let's buy a watermelon. And then that activity would turn into, well, let's throw this off the clock tower. Yeah, 100%. And that's a blast. It didn't hurt anybody. (laughs) We made sure of it. And I'll never get bored again because I can always throw a watermelon off a building. Yeah, well, it was nice of you not to hurt anybody. But (laughs) we would, yeah, we would do weird and wild things. We would shoot fireworks out of places that we shouldn't be shooting fireworks out of just to see what happens. (laughs) So we did hurt people, actually. Um, Oh, no. But, uh, yeah, it's just that is what I grew up with. That's kind of the world. So any Anything from then on out was a little bit intimidating, um, but also uh, very exciting and new. Yeah. My worldview, I guess, was very small, um, but back then I didn't know any different. I was pretty content. Yeah. That. So we were initially, when we were kind of planning this conversation, we thought that we were going to be talking with your good friend Riley as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and Riley sounds like an amazing guy. Did you meet him growing up? Were you friends as children? Kind of. So Riley's okay. uh, five years older than me. Got it. And uh, he grew up in the same hometown as I did. Uh, but, I mean, as Riley was sitting here, he'd tell you he was a, a wild child, uh, and that isn't explaining it completely even correct. Like, he was off his rocker into the worst possible things, doing the worst possible things for many years of his life. And so we were, we were uh, familiar with each other, but we weren't friends until college and when I met him again. And then after college, Riley's life has completely taken uh, – you know, now it's been how many years? Seven years for him out of college, and it's taken a, a complete turn. That's fascinating. Uh, for the better. Oh, he's he's an incredible guy. So we knew each other. I knew of him, but the guy I'm friends with now was not the person I Interesting. knew back then. Yeah. Who were the people who were influencing your life growing up then? Uh, definitely my parents. Okay. Uh, good very, relationship? Great relationship. That's cool. As an only child, uh, we spent a ton of time That's together good. as, you know, even friends, and we, you know, we would do everything together. And so they had a huge impact. But the one thing they did best uh, for me being an only child was they forced me to interact socially with a bunch of people mm. through sports, uh, through you know having friends over to the house. And they even went as far as purchasing a house in the lake so I could have friends come hang on the lake. So I was never alone. I was never, you know, I never felt like an only child because I always had a friend there pulling time or pulling space that, you know. Yeah. So I, I think that intentionality I, is fascinating. Yeah, they really did a good job at that. And so I had a, a really solid group of friends that I treated like brothers and sisters that I think they just were like, yeah, we're just friends. But I looked at them as brothers and sisters and extremely cool. huge confidants in my life because I didn't have anybody else. In some interviews you've done, you've talked about this idea of feeling unlovable or unlikable. Do you feel like you can trace that back to a moment in your childhood do you do you have any idea where that because it sounds to me like that is contrary to the relationships that you know your parents were so intentional about building around you definitely yeah i mean i you could i i want to trace it back to moments or to a moment and i think a better way when i get to elaborate on a little bit to explain it would be i have this weird concept that i've always felt where i'm the kid if there's a good picture of this in a lot of uh, in a couple books but I'm the kid on the outside of the window looking in at the party, knowing I wasn't invited and not knowing why I wasn't invited. Mm. And so it's more of that feeling of like, why am I not accepted? Why am I not involved? Like, what do I have to do to prove for, to you to like me or not? Yeah. Uh, and, and I think I, I remember my first time feeling it was uh, I was in a, a, my library in elementary school. I was in second grade and it was reading time, partner reading time. And everybody was called to get a partner by choice and go off and read. And I remember at that moment, nobody chose me. And I had great friends in my class. And I remember sitting in the corner, not knowing what to do, like being paralyzed and panicked, like, I don't have a partner. I don't have mm. a friend. I, I wasn't chosen. Um, and I remember that feeling still to this day of that, like, immediate paralyzation of, and that, like, heartache on what if nobody actually likes me. And I, and I think that same feeling is the one I feel very similar to in moments today, um, especially when I'm not operating at my best. Yeah, yeah. It is interesting how when you're in a place where you feel a little bit less healthy or a little bit more 
stressed and overwhelmed, you, you kind of revert to those childhood insecurities. Do you know by any chance what your Enneagram number is? Do you know about the Enneagram? Yeah, I think I'm a four. A four. Okay, yep. cool. Yeah, I'm a four. I That's believe. the individualist? Yes. Cool. Yeah, so is that the one, like, super, like, I, I function best in super authentic situations. Yep, yep. That's when I'm healthiest. Mm-hmm. And then I think it was funny because as I took the Enneagram test, it was that concept of when you're at your worst, you will feel like an outsider. Yeah. You will feel like nobody gets you. Yeah. Nobody understands you. And probably, and I don't know this for sure because I don't know if I've studied it enough, but when you're maybe at your most healthy, you know, maybe all the other kids, they pick partners in your independence. And you almost get to own that. And you say, I'm unique. I'm mm. special. You know, yeah. all of a sudden, you're actually, it's not that you're the outlier in a negative way. You're the outlier in a positive way. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. And, and when you're at your worst, there's still that feeling of nobody gets it. Hmm. And it's kind of the, like the joke. And obviously, my life has kind of played a big joke on me because <laughs> the Truman Show freaks me out yeah. to a level that like... It's one of the wildest movies ever made. Wildest movies ever. And the idea that everybody's in on something that you're not actually haunts me a bit. And it, I mean, that happened to you for months of so your life. So I said, it's a, it's a funny joke. That's yeah. wild. So then I do The Bachelor <laughs> and everybody's watching me Yeah, and in on a joke that I didn't know about, right? Yeah. At some level. So I don't know if it's ironic. I don't know if, again, it's just more humorous to whoever's out there watching this story <laughs> play out. <laughs> Who knows? But that is, like, those are the two things in my life that, like, I haven't came to terms with in my faith walk, in my personal walk, in my relational walk, is feeling confident that this isn't one big joke. Which then leads me to, and I, to kind of close your, your question is, to my biggest fear, and this still sits with me today, is I don't understand or I don't have a firm grasp at all on what happens after death. Mm. So that's where, like, when we start getting deep and we start functioning and asking really hard questions, it's like those, that's where my mind goes, is what if this is all it? When you were growing up as a Methodist kid, surrounded by all these other Methodists, you know, not specifically Methodist, but more just kind of the general faith world, I feel like when you're around a lot of people who are culturally a part of this thing, Sometimes when you get outside of it, it feels like a lot of people are are faking their certainty. There's less faith and more presumed or uh, assumed uh, certainty. Everything feels black and white. And the further that I deconstruct and get out of kind of the, the cultural faith that I experienced, the more I go, I don't, you know, that thing that I believed about life after death, I don't know what I think about that anymore. Do you feel like that's something that you... Have, have thought about as well of uh, kind of deconstructing maybe some of the certainty that may have been projected around you? Oh, yeah, 100%. I mean, I think you hit it. Um, it just takes somebody entering in their 20s and seeing them leave the faith or question the faith for the first time and and knowing that they have nothing to fall back on and because of it's been a cultural thing and it hasn't actually ever been a choice and it's not really even real to them for me to start asking that same question. Do mm. I really believe this? Do I really know this? Do I really have a relationship with the God that I've claimed to know and felt comfortable with? I mean, I say it now is like, if you take away Jesus from me, you take away everything. Like you want to see my world crumble, you take away the certainty that is Jesus. Yeah. And so that's what was happening slowly, but surely the things that I was holding so closely to that kind of were in relation to Jesus were the same things that all of a sudden I see my friends start to give up on. Yeah. And I, and I couldn't disagree with them. Like there was things that were they were saying was like, wait, you might be right. And if you pull that piece away, what piece is that taking away from my idea yeah. of Jesus? And, and where does that leave Jesus? Is Jesus just another abstract idea that isn't true either that could yeah. be ripped from me? And I mean, this is, I'm 29. This is, this happened probably starting at 23 and it still mm. exists at a very like high level yeah. today. But what's happened now as, as I've been in it a little longer, it's became this beautiful journey where yes. it's kind of the parable of the potter. And I feel like it's, things are just getting chipped away, but there's still one thing that continues to stay constant. And, and it's, so this is like this beautiful um, deconstruction, which yeah. is, you know, obviously the, a, a key word today. Of, what a healthy thing to chip away at all these yeah. things that are not important and aren't real. You know, for even for people who aren't people of faith, to to always be inspecting the things that we believe and the things that we're curious about and say, what if that isn't true? Like like let me just double check it because if it if it isn't true, I don't need to hold on to it. It's baggage at that point. But how brutal of a process is it, especially for oh, somebody who grows up in a town 
that anytime anything is questioned within the faith, there is a revolt or that person is turned against, no matter what, mm. right? So it is a scary time too, one yeah. that we don't handle well amongst people. And so today, I think with the the exploits and the things that we're doing or that I'm doing in our life, it's to try to help people have an escape, to be known, to be seen, and to be heard, and to try to work people through this process that I think all of us are going to start going through. Yeah, uh, I think it is. it is... Uh, a part of the times is we're all going to start deconstructing. And instead of deconstructing to the point of giving up completely, what if Jesus actually is tr- re- like true? Like, what if that's true? What does that look like then when all the other stuff starts to go away? For me, that's the questions I have to ask myself today. Man, good questions. I like it. I want to hear about Peru. So yeah. how did you end it's, up in Peru? It's a weird story. How old were you? Uh, 22. Okay, so this is post-college. Post-college, I was in a super serious relationship. Uh, with a woman I loved dearly. And I thought, okay, so I'm an only child from Warsaw, Indiana, and I had this dream that I was going to go back to Warsaw, Indiana, and I was going to get a great job by a house in the lake, and she was going to be absolutely thrilled about it. <laughs> she had different ideas, and she told me that, like, uh, I remember this this moment where she was, she kind of looked at me and said, you've kind of lost your it factor. Uh, and I knew, I knew looking back I did, right? I what was, was your it factor? <laughs> uh, mystery, um, passion, a reverence for life, and a motivation to actually pursue something. Got it. So you were kind of normalizing or flowing back to something that was natural and easy. Yeah. I was going to live right next to my parents. That was cool, right? <laughs> and so to prove her wrong, why well, she said that, and I still loved her, I, went to, I was like, I'm going to move to Peru. You're going to graduate from college, and then I'll come back, and we'll see what happens. Well, why, mo- why Peru? Uh, Machu Picchu. Of course. It was just, I wanted, Beautiful. Yeah, I just wanted to hike it. Yep. And my buddy was going to go. So I get down to Peru, and I realized very quickly that I was going to get homesick and that I was going to miss her. And so I fought through it. I taught English. Um, Do you speak Spanish? Not very well. Okay. No, not really at all. I can't even cl- – no, don't. I, I visited Peru a year ago, yeah. and I had never tried to speak Spanish before. I screwed up royally. Yeah, pretty I, bad. I tried to say good job to my Uber driver because he found my spot, and I said, bien trabajo, and everybody <laughs> in the car laughed. They're that's like, that's nothing. not how this works. Yeah, that's nothing. <laughs> Um, and so here's, here's what gets crazy with Peru. So Peru is this like journey for me to prove to myself that I could be a person that actually was interesting, that could live a good story. And that was going to be my story, right? Mm-hmm. That was going to be what I talked about for thir- 20 years. Mm. Um, and so, uh, life had a funny way where I, all of a sudden my girlfriend and I, long story short, were struggling. She was going to break up with me. I wanted to get back home to see her. I didn't have money to get back home. I didn't want to ask my parents for money because I was proving to myself that I could do this. And so I went into my volunteer headquarters, the place that I went through, and I said, I need a job. Do you have a job? And they said, Ben, do you have any farming experience? I said, my grandpa has three horses and chickens. And they said, that's enough. (laughs) And I'm not kidding you. Um, I went, they drove me out to the university, dropped me off at a rescue zoo. And this zoo was a rescue zoo for giraffes, wolves, pumas, bear, Condor, eagles, hawks, and uh, monkeys. And they said, the lady here has been working for 20 years without a break. She needs a month vacation. We need to give it to her. She's getting older. Can you take it over? Whoa. And so How I much ch- time did you have before she was going to leave on that month? A week. <laughs> and so for a week, she trained me. And the crazy part about a Peruvian rescue zoo in Cusco was that there's no holding tanks to feed the animals. And so it's chain link fences. And so you actually go in with two people, one person with a stick, that wards off the animals. The other person dumps the food and then picks up. So I have all these videos and pictures of me inside of a bear tank, like with bears surrounding me and pouring out their food and just running out with wheelbarrows. Like <laughs> my buddy who went and helped me for two days went in to clean the monkeys and uh, the spider monkeys jumped on his back, punched him in the head and bit him, sent him to the hospital. And so for <gasps> a month of my life, I ran a Peruvian zoo. <laughs> And I came back, and it was like... That's the title of, the, of this podcast episode. <laughs> ben ran a Peruvian, Peruvian zoo. zoo. Yeah, and I legitimately did. I have pictures and videos to prove it. My buddies and I from this wow. home ran a Peruvian zoo for a month. And, and there's a good lesson from that, is I finally got home, and I looked back, and I thought at that time, if I allow this to be the end of my cool story, if this is the most interesting thing I ever do, and this is pretty darn interesting, I thought... I won't be content with that. I won't be okay wow. 70 telling my grandkids this story and saying at one point in my life, this is all I did. So then that's kind of where I moved to Denver, took a job, and before you knew it, I was on reality television. Wow, that is fascinating. That's what a thing to have this experience, be like, this is amazing, and realize that you 
can't let that be the most amazing thing you've ever done. Yeah. You did other traveling before The Bachelor, right? Definitely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, definitely. So what – tell me a little bit more about kind of some, some of those other trips you took. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I traveled a ton um, with my family. Uh, Florida, Mexico, your typical stuff. Uh, but there was this constant in my life where I go to Honduras with Humanity and Hope United. And uh, when I was 15 years old, my family and I took a trip with a, a church group to Honduras. And it was my first time ever seeing poverty uh, up close. Yeah. Uh, poverty with my own eyes. And it, it really uh, confused me. It angered me. Not because of the poverty, because there didn't seem to be a good solution. I was having a weird God complex where I was like, why? But in my mind, as a very unintelligent 15-year-old, like, why are these people poor? What can we do about it? And it was like, nothing, right? This is just the mm. birth lottery. They're, they're stuck. Yeah, we, as, as white men in, you know, growing up in middle-class and wealthy America, we have a certain level of privilege that you show up and you're like, oh, other people don't have the same privilege yeah, that I do. Well, what do you, yeah, it's, it's absolutely crazy. What are you talking about, that you don't go eating for a meal or that you don't have clean water? I don't get it. And so I came back to the States, and I went down to Peru, or Honduras one more time. Um, and still was unable to process how we f- fix it. And, and now I travel to Honduras a couple times a year with Humanity Hope United because that's where Riley, who we talked yeah. to, my buddy came in, who was on that trip with me, and he came back, and he was smart enough to actually say, uh, what if we started to build sustainable change in these communities that hmm. we're seeing to actually partner with them, to not give them anything, but to partner with them to get them from point A to point B and see them succeed because they're people too. They're smart people also. They're confident and, and they have, uh, they're competent enough to hold jobs and to supply for their families. And so that's where now my international travel kind of born, was born from, was this idea of we can help and I want to partner with you to do it. Yeah, man, I love that idea of, of saying, hey, these are people who, you know, they have ambitions and dreams and skills and abilities. There's just an obstacle in the way that, uh, you know, that's in the way for them that I didn't have for me. Why don't we work together to get rid of those obstacles? 100%. So that's now that's kind of where my life now has been that's, born from was that one trip. Man, okay, so you guys both come home from this trip mm-hmm. and Riley has this idea. Did you have, a, like, were you kind of thinking up something or is he just like the total idea? Man, I'm guy? not very smart. Yeah, I struggle. <laughs> so it was seven years later, actually, oh, when he came up with the idea. Wow, So okay. he was working in corporate America. He was uh, working for a large financial services firm, making a ton of money. And finally, uh, life broke him. Hmm. And he kind of had started forming this idea that we could actually uh, partner with people in the developing world and not act like the saviors and not act and not look down on them, but just partner with them and build up these communities by just letting them know that they're loved, that they're seen, that they're heard, and that they have skill sets that can transfer over to making them successful in the healthiest of terms and the healthiest yeah. of ways. And so he, seven years later, he came up with this idea. And I remember he came to me because I, I was so angry still that this first mission trip I took, where we went down, we passed out food boxes. And then we left. And the next year, we went down and we passed out food boxes. And we left. And the people were still the same. They're still crying. They're still yelling. They're still begging for this food. Yeah. And, and they were still hungry a week later. Yeah. It's one, you know, one week out of the year, they're yeah. fed by you guys. But that's. I felt like there was no there was no relationship there, yeah. and I was angry about it, and I had this anger still. Uh, for seven years, I held on to it. For seven years, I Man. spoke about it, and Riley came to me. Uh, I remember this moment. It was at a wedding, and he said, hey, I have this idea, and we didn't know each other well at all. He goes, I have this idea. Why do you think he chose you to tell this to Because I think he knew I was so angry. Oh. I had been pretty, uh, pretty outs- outspoken about what I thought mission trips were, were yeah. and that I didn't like them. Isn't anger a good thing in that, in that way? Like, oh, great thing. I love that anger can be so motivating yeah. and, and can be like, no, we've got to, something's got to change. We've got, we, yes, yeah, something's got to change, but here is where my issue lied. Yeah. I don't know how. Totally. There, is there an option? Like, my idea of, a, of international travel was literally passing out food boxes. What else is there? Could I, I, could, I don't think I could even conceptualize that you could actually purchase a plot of land to build a small business, to employ the people from the community, so those people found jobs that could then, with, with the jobs and the salaries they had, pay for their kids to go to school. When their kids go to school, they can progress and go to college. If their kids can go to college from Honduras and make 20000 a year even, that's hundreds of thousands of times more than their parents were making. It completely changed the trajectory of a community. Wow. I couldn't conceptualize that. Riley did, and Riley could, and he was the right por- person to do it. And so when he came to me and said, hey, I had this idea. What if instead of going down to the developing world and every time you do it, you feel guilty and sad 
and depressed because you feel like, oh, woe is me, and I have so much, <laughs> and I need to give up everything now. What if we built an organization that every time we went down and invested into them, we went back, and they're in a little better place, and a little mm. better place, and a little better place, until one day they're so sustainable and they're functioning at such a high level that we could actually say goodbye to them and just be friends with them. Put yourself out of business, and you're just we're, we're, we're just friends. That's we're just, amazing. We're, and, and he goes, what if that happens? Oh, and at that point- I just point, got goosebumps. Exactly. And I said, I, at that point, I said, I'm in. And now we're eight years later, <laughs> um, functioning in four communities, uh, three communities. And uh, we're functioning in three communities and uh, moving on to a fourth this year. Incredible. Um, so for the first time ever, 23 kids are going on to secondary school, which will send them to high school, uh, which will hopefully send them all to college. Coming from communities that have felt unknown- um, forever. So for me, um, I guess over the last eight years, I've seen what partnership and what true love can do. And it's changed the way I view desperate situations, I guess. Wow. Yeah. Because all of a sudden you see this problem and you realize that there is a solution. You can be a part of it. And that one day that solution will actually result in no more of that problem. Yeah, I mean, exactly. It's, what, okay, what if we actually strategically and efficiently invested our resources and our time and our energies into something that would be lasting for the betterment of the future and not just to fill a void today? Wow. And that's what Humanity and Hope has been doing. Um, and it's what a lot of our lives uh, and my friend group, this is a cool thing, man. Uh, a lot of our friend groups are part of this organization. And so when we get together, now, yeah, we still kick back a good <laughs> glass of bourbon. We still talk life and we still celebrate. We'll still take trips. But we have a common bond that is Humanity and Hope United um, that allows us to speak and talk and share about something a lot bigger than ourselves. Mm. And it has kept our friend group so tight. When you ask, who did I rally around myself as an only child? Who is my support system? My support system are the same friends today that they were back then. No Because way. we've had a common bond for eight years that isn't about just our friendships. It's and about the pet. It's, it's, it's a lot bigger. We have something to do something to pursue, something to, we have to fight injustices. And lucky enough, we get to do it as friends. Wow. And that's especially fascinating because you've got this thing that's bigger than you. And then you went on to do something big. You went on to show up on The Bachelor, a yeah. popular guy on The Bachelor. And what I love is that this is still bigger than that. Oh, so much bigger. So much yeah, bigger. Yeah, it, it, it crushes The Bachelor. So here's the cool <laughs> thing. So uh, I got put on The Bachelorette because... Uh, it just uh, by a series of coincidences, finally, m an executive at my company who was a huge fan of those, she said, I think you need to do The Bachelorette because <laughs> you're a sad, sad young man. This was right after, this was right post Peru. <laughs> so I came back to Denver. I was working in Denver and I was sad and I was lonely. Oh, wait, because she, your girlfriend broke up with you. Girlfriend broke up Got with it. me. I was single. <laughs> I lost my it factor. Everything was falling apart. <laughs> and so she goes, You got to go on The Bachelor. So I, you know, signed up. Uh, they called. I went on. I did that whole thing. Uh, it was a great experience. I met some had great friendships. Wait, were you? How did you feel signing up for this? Did it feel weird? Did it feel? Oh right? yeah. Well, so at this point, I was I was pretty pathetic, and so like signing <laughs> so, like, up for anything. anything was like yeah, like you can't your your ego and your pride can't be hurt any worse. Is that a common factor? Maybe this isn't a good question to ask, but is that a common factor for people who show up on the show? Uh, it's an underlying factor for many. Some people have massive amounts of confidence, which right. is another issue. You don't get <laughs> you don't get many moderates. No. Yeah. I mean, that's the same with, like, President of the United States. You don't get anybody who's like, I don't really think I should do this. Uh, you know, it's all the people who are, like, super, Yeah, they've got the full thing Big going personalities on. can, you know, talk your <laughs> ear off, which we're doing today. So I went on. That felt weird. Walked out of a limo and on The Bachelor. I remember looking around me, and there was lights, and there was cameras, and there was people. And as soon as I walked in the house, I knew that was going to be a wild ride because my worldview was going to be changed completely. You had people from all over the world sitting in this one house dating one person. That's a whole separate category. But actually <laughs> being in a house without phones, television, books, whatever, and having yeah. to get to know your castmates and friends was a very intentional time for me to get to know people without the same belief system, with a lot more success than I had, uh, with crazier stories than I had. So it kind of put me in my place even again. That's really fascinating. It, it broke. Yeah. I broke completely. I was already broken. I broke completely on The Bachelorette and almost was rebuilt. Because here's the cool about, part about that show. Do you feel like people saw you breaking or oh, was yeah. that more internal? Oh, they saw me. Okay. Yeah, they saw me. It, but it was, I didn't, I, when I break, I get quiet. 
Hmm. Uh, I don't break and react loud. Yep. And so it didn't make great television. And so I was breaking. But what a cool thing happened during that show. And, and The Bachelorette is a past life for me. But th- this, is, this is a huge moment in my life. The whole show is based on you talking about yourself. Every day at all moments, there are interviews about who are you, what are you, what are you looking for, what makes you tick. And I was broken, and then I was rebuilt on the show because every day I had to talk about myself. Every day I had to share, and that's where the unlovable thing came from. That's the moment that I said, I've never admitted this, but I feel unlovable. I feel unlikable. I've never been confident enough in myself to share it, but I had talked about it so often that I'd wrapped around it that I had tried to skirt past it during these interviews so much that finally I broke, and I just said, I feel unlovable, Mm. and I'm not okay about it. And that became my cry. That became my stance, and from that moment on, I was healing and it walked into the, in the Bachelor. Um, and you probably didn't, you were obviously unplugged, so you couldn't see this, but as you were sharing that, the world, I would imagine they started to say, me too. You know, they say, oh, I relate with that. I relate with that so brokenness. Many. Far more than you saying, I'm strong, I'm confident, I've got it all together. Yeah, I'm the best thing out. No, like my brokenness built a community around me wow. that was far more than I could have ever That's imagined. incredible. And it was really just, and what made it even better, was it was out of, a super authentic moment like of me actually breaking on camera and being like, I and like super weird that it had to happen this way. Not ideal, but maybe it is, you know, like it sucks that now, uh, you know, at the time I had to also talk about and confront my biggest insecurity, but then also I had to confront and talk about my biggest insecurity and my friends and family now knew my biggest insecurity. Mm. People knew me better, actually knew me better. Yeah. That's really interesting because oftentimes when you build a platform, you put a certain version of yourself out there. It can sometimes be less authentic than the true self. And so then your friends and family who are seeing this, but also know the real you, they're getting these conflicting things. And I love that this somehow randomly built a stronger relationship for you. A hundred percent it did. And so fast forward a little bit, get off the show, um, get asked to be the bachelor. I'm getting ready to get on a plane. And I called up my family, my friends, my very last friend to call was Riley because we had been doing a lot of stuff together in terms of projects and business and with the nonprofit. And all of a sudden, I was sitting at the airport in B Terminal in Denver. It hit me. I said, for the last two months, as I, since I was announced as The Bachelor, my whole life has been about myself. I've been answering questions about myself. I've been responding to what my love life could look like, what I dreamed of it looking like. There's a billboard in, New- in Times Square of myself. Everything right now is about me. And it felt really cool for a while. And I realized at that point, I no longer was feeling cool to me. And so I called up Riley and I was like, I'm struggling, man. Like I'm getting ready to walk into this experience. I'm getting on a plane to fly to LA to start this show. And all I know is that this whole thing has been a selfish pursuit. It's to find my wife. It's to promote me and to make me look as good as possible so that women are attracted to me. I don't know what to do with this anymore. Like, is this what we had always talked about? And he, he shared with me then. He, he, I, I still remember he goes, well, how about you try to use this for something bigger than yourself? And at that moment, I said, what is that thing? And he goes, well, you already have H&H. What if you just use this to promote Humanity and Hope? Wow. Like that simple, that clear. And I walked off that conversation with so much confidence knowing this whole thing, yes, I hope to find my wife. I dream of finding my wife in this moment. But what if this whole thing is about something a lot bigger than mm. that? And that ties back to what you were saying earlier yeah. is all of a sudden this community became a lot bigger than The Bachelor or Bachelorette. That became a platform or something that was like just gifted to me from a wild ride of circumstances without ever intentionally pursuing being on the show yeah, that then was handed to me that then I think that the calling was, what are you going to do with it? And it, there was something already there in Humanity and Hope that made it really easy to say, what I'm going to do with this is promote this. And, uh, and you know, that's what we've been doing now. Wow. So when you were on The Bachelor and you kind of went in with this mentality of having this thing that's bigger, Humanity and Hope, did you get to talk about Humanity and Hope on the air during that season? I can't remember if it was actually ever aired. Yeah, because I'm sure that things get cut. And yeah. They've got to prioritize. And- but the one thing cool they let me do is I have a, still have the same bracelet. So I have this Hope bracelet that I wear all oh, the cool. time. I wore it on the show. Um, and it's from a company called Mud Love out of... Oh, yeah, uh, I know them. Yeah, Warsaw, yeah. Indiana. It's from my hometown. Oh, no way. Yeah. That's cool. And so they gave me this before the show to remind me of my favorite word and also my hometown. I wore it. And then after the show, um, it was kind of highlighted on the show a little bit. People would ask me. We sold hope bracelets for uh, to Humanity Hope. And it was our first large give That's um, cool. towards our organization. I love that in your position, it seems like the obvious way to make this about this thing that's bigger than you is just to, you know, talk about 
humanity and hope on the show. Kind of give your, you know, 10% of your time to this thing. And I love that what you ultimately got to do is you got to have every action, instead of just a few actions, have every action come back to this greater idea. You know, you had to hold yourself with a level of integrity or, uh, you know, have this greater kind of idea in mind uh, so that you could leave the show and have something bigger than just, you know, your your 30 seconds on TV yeah. where you get to promote the thing. You you then get to move all these people that have built a relationship with you through the television towards this thing that, that really matters to you. Yeah, I mean, just like my faith, it became humanity and hope and, and, the, and the pursuit of um, highlighting the, the people that are we are serving um, in Honduras became the ethos of every, like it became my breath. It became, That's cool. and it really did every day. It was like, why am I here? Okay. I'm here for something bigger. If that's a relationship, incredible. If that's the promotion of something that I believe is really good and doing good, even better. If this is about a bigger purpose that I don't even know yet, great. But I'm going to go into this day, into this day or whatever with the mindset of this is for something a lot bigger than even just this moment. And it helped me through. Um, mm. It got me through and, and it led me now to where I sit today as you know the, the CEO of Generous that was birthed from you know, the same concept. I love that so much. And I want to talk about generous in a, in a minute. I feel like I remember, wasn't there something that Chris Harrison on the bachelor told you about platform and fame mm. and, and how to use it? Yeah. I, I'm trying to remember what that was. Yeah. So Chris is a great guy and incredibly smart, been around for a while. And I got kicked off the bachelorette <laughs> and I was in the lobby in Ireland and I had a glass of whiskey. I'll never forget this. And he, and he came down and he goes, so I was just got kicked off the show that night. And you're, you're bummed, I presume. Bummed, bummed. And he's like, man, this is kind of crazy, right? And he goes, do you have any idea what's next? And I was like, well, I'm going to go back to work at my software company, and I'll move back to Denver. He goes, yeah, that's great, but you understand this is going to, like, affect your life a little bit. I'm like, I don't think it will. <laughs> like, yeah, like, I'm sure there'll be some attention. And, and I really was oblivious to it. And he goes, man, this is really going to affect your life in whatever capacity. And at this point, I didn't know I was the next Bachelor. Do you think he did at that point? Yeah, I think he's. Okay. I think he had an idea. But he said this one little nugget that I'll keep with me forever. He goes, use this experience. And I think this transfers over to anything. Yeah. To enhance the life you've already been given and not change your life completely. And so Enhance I, the life you've already been given and not change your life completely. Exactly. And wow. so I had a life that I had built, that I had suffered through, that I had celebrated, that had family and friends and community and a a good job at the time. And what I needed to do was find whatever way to continue to keep the things that are healthy, remove the things that aren't healthy in my life so I can pursue the thing I've always been prepping for. So pursue the purpose I've always been preparing for along the way and not change everything, you know, not come off the show and change and wipe out all my friendships, all my relationships, everything I had built to the point and kind of start over as this new fame had suddenly soaked in on you. And I kept that as a, a filter on every decision I made. Mm. And, and, and it's funny because there were some really good decisions that I made after the show. Um, and that wasn't because of me. Most of the time, because of me, they would have been selfish pursuits. <laughs> but when I took a step back and I was able to process it through the filter and the lens of, is this enhancing? Is this changing? Then I could make the wise decision, even if it didn't feel right at the time. And I will tell you, I mean, there was definitely mistakes along the way, but that helped me make less mistakes and it helped me still understand myself Wow. today. At least I think I understand myself. That reminds me a lot of this book. Uh, I think it's Simon Sinek. It's called Start With Why. And it's ultimately about this idea of, hey, no matter what you're doing, start with asking yourself why you're doing this. What's the greater, what's the greater story here? And I love that you came off this show you had this struggle with fame, but because you were able to zoom out and ask the, your, ask yourself this question of, hey, is this in line with kind of this bigger picture? Yeah. Um, is this, you know, improving my life that I have already um, instead of, you know, starting something new? That's what got you through. What were, I can imagine it's not that easy. It's, it's not just quite as easy as that. What were some of the real hard parts of fame? Oh, because because you they yeah. hit you hard, man. Like yeah. the Bachelor is a wild, wild thing. It's a wild thing, and it's a personal thing, and it's yeah, allowing it's really people personal. into your most like intimate moments. Because uh, yeah, it's real for you when you're on the show. hundred percent. I think real. it's pretty easy to look at that and be like, uh, "This is all just you know crazy part of a show." But for you, it's 
you know, you're in this environment. You're fully living there. I fell in love on this show. Man. Right? I mean, I was engaged for 18 months from this show, and it was a real engagement. So for me, this 70 years from now, whoever my future wife is, uh, and my grandkids ask me, you know, Grandpa, were you, were you ever engaged <laughs> before Grandma? I'll have to say yes, and I'll say in this moment. This will affect my life forever, uh, and, and for the most part in a great way. I think the issue with fame, I've came to the conclusion, and, and a buddy of mine, Corey, said this, humans are not meant to be famous. We're not made to be famous. There's only mm. one name that should be and can be famous successfully because fame, when done uh, in a selfish pursuit, is not everlasting, and it is a burden that we're not meant to carry. Mm. Now, granted, with a, a caveat there, some people, for whatever reason, are famous. So the question then is, what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with that fame? Some of the issues are, obviously, the criticism and judgments. Um, you can build a tough skin. Um, words still hurt. You can get yeah. a thousand things. There's a ton of studies out there on this, but you can get a thousand things nice said about you, and the one mean thing hits really deep and really totally. hard. Um, especially coming from people who have known you and grown up close to you. Um, the, the other piece of fame is that everybody pulls at you, right? So you, uh, you're always being asked to be in a thousand places at once. And as soon as you can't abide by those requests, you've changed. You're a different person. And that hurts deep, especially because my one motto right now, where it really has been, is like, I'm not going to change. Like, mm. I'm not going to change. I'm going to enhance. I'm not going to change. I'm going to stay true to who I was because I know that if I do that, that my friends will hold me accountable, my family can hold me accountable and know me better. I want my friends and family to know me and not. I don't want to change from that. And so when somebody says you've changed or they're hurt by the fact that you don't have the time to give up for them, that stings deep. And I think that's yeah. tough. Um, it, it, makes you, it makes you, one, feel like an object and two, feel like you're failing a lot of people. How do you set your priorities then? How do you decide this is what I say yes to, this is what I say no to? Uh, good question. You can help me answer that maybe sometime. <laughs> um, I'm getting better. Uh, you know, it's, it's taken a lot of pain and hurt and a lot of awkward conversations and a lot of confusing moments and a lot of bad communication to yeah. get to a place. You got to um, fail a lot to get anywhere close to success. 100% because some of the most fruitful times in my life have been ones that I wouldn't have expected them to be fruitful. Yeah. So what do you enter into and what do you not? How do you choose what to? And so I go back to, to my good friend and, and mentor, uh, Andy Stanley. Uh, when I say good friend, I just listen to him a lot on podcasts <laughs> and read his books. But he, you know, he wrote a great book a few years ago called What is the Wise Thing to Do? And I think outside of the lens of is this going to enhance life or change life, I now I process things through the lens of is this the wise thing to do? Is this the wise meeting to take? Is this the wise conversation to have? Is tonight the wise night to go out with friends or is it tomorrow? You know, yeah. and, and you try to process through that. And, and honestly, I bet I fail daily multiple times even trying to do it with intention. Wow. So yeah, there isn't... I'm a, the same. Yeah, so I mean, I think it's, it's kind of the, the, a, a funny phrase of falling upward. You just yeah. have to keep falling upward and falling forward and... And, and tripping and falling again and, and, and trying to hurt as little people as possible along the way, knowing that your intention is never to hurt, hurt yeah. anybody. But it's hard, and I don't have a good answer to it. From what I know of you, though, it also sounds like you've done a good job of prioritizing those core people in your life who have been around for a long time and this greater mission that you have, humanity and hope. When are the times when you don't prioritize? Like, like in a thoughtful, wise way, when you, know, you have these priorities in your life, are there times where you go, oh, this is a moment where it's okay for me to not prioritize this? D does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think. So there are moments in my life uh, nowadays that I think, you have to, I think you have to be comfortable staying in your lane. I think that's how you answer that. So you yeah. have to kind of analyze life and look at it in a way and says, what are the lanes that are, are right now the most fruitful? Mm. What are bearing the most fruit for, for me and others? And then you pursue those lanes. You pursue those trees. Now, those trees could change over time, right? You're, you go off in new directions and you see new avenues or whatever, but you have to look at what thing is providing the most fruit. Um, I also think a practice in my life that's been big, and this is more of a tangible practice that I think uh, has been a huge t benefit to me, is as an only child, I'm very used to my time alone. I'm very comfortable in my time alone. I function best when I have some time alone. Not all of it, but yeah. some time alone. And so prioritizing for me uh, hours, um, hours hours, to be alone. And, and I do it in a certain way. And so yeah. it has to be at night. 
I don't slow down great during the daylight. <laughs> so in the evenings, I pour myself a glass of bourbon. I turn off all the lights. This gets a little weird. Uh, <laughs> I turn off all the lights. I have a tobacco pipe. So I have an old school, old man's tobacco pipe. I turn off all the lights. I light candles, and I play um, typically indie folk music, Amos Lee, Penny and Sparrow, those kind of guys. And I just let my mind go. I just mm. let my, my, my mind go. And I consciously, it's, it's a practice. Um, that's a little scary sometimes. Oh, sometimes I'm yeah. like, I don't want to let my mind go. I'm going to stay busy. I don't want to process yeah. anything. Yeah, you're always processing. I, don't, I think we forget how often we're intentionally processing things. And so I just let my mind run and go. And it is scary. Sometimes I walk out of that in, in, in a very like contemplative state. Sometimes I walk out of it super refreshed and renewed mm. and a, with the ability to conquer the world. Wow. Sometimes I have my best moments in um, creativeness during this, these times. Dang, I'm inspired. But that is, so that is a practice that I've uh, implemented into my life. And so I can run pretty hard as long as I have that time and that moment to just let myself be free. Are you able to do that while you travel still? No. Man, okay, so that's, that's, that's almost the hardest part yeah. about traveling. It's not the wear and tear of, of airplanes. It's, it's finding that time to be alone. Yeah, it's finding the time to be alone. It, you know, here's a hard part about travel. And for everybody out there listening, if you travel at all. For me, I travel, like I said, 70 plus times already this year. Every place I go, um, it's seeing somebody new, somebody I haven't seen maybe in a while. And for them, and for me even too, it's a cool interaction, right? So let's go out for dinner. Let's go out and show you the town. For me, it's something that's happening three times a week. Yeah. So it gets exhausting. It's it's a constant uh, renewing of a new relationship or a new interaction. And that gets, it wears on you a bunch. And so setting boundaries and travel is something that I'm not good at. I haven't mm. been good at it. And, and so that's something that is is at the forefront of hopefully a progress or a <laughs> process that I'm getting better at. I'm with life. you. I'm with you. Man, tell me about starting Generous Coffee. So you're a few years out of The Bachelor. Mm-hmm. You are continuing to want to, you know, prioritize this mission, this cause, this, uh, this ability to make a difference that you care deeply about. Where did Generous Coffee fall into this? Yeah, so on a trip with Humanity and Hope, Riley and I um, were, were down in Honduras, and we had, were around a couple um, older gentlemen who had kind of mentored us along the way, and they had ran a nonprofit in Honduras for many years. And uh, we were walking around. I was still working software. Riley knew I wanted to get out of software. I knew I wanted to get out of software. I felt like it was irresponsible for us not to take, take advantage of the platform that we had been given um, by doing something different than anybody else, not just endorsing products and endorsing things, but actually like building something that was sustainable. So we were, we already had that in our, our minds. And one night at dinner, one, one of the older gentlemen looked at us and said, Hey, what you're doing with Humanity Hope is actually working. Like crazy enough, like <laughs> social causes and nonprofits can actually work. What you're doing is actually working. There's a tangible effect that can be quantified. We're specifically talking about on the ground, on the, the ground impact in Honduras, it's having. the impact it's having. But they said, what happens if your fundraising runs out? We had gone from a $40,000 a year uh, nonprofit to over a $300,000 a year nonprofit wow. in three years. One of that is because of some hiring of some help for Humanity and Hope. The other piece of that that we can't neglect is a platform that allowed us to promote to a million people and totally. a click of a button. Yep. And so we all of a sudden had this new kind of bubble of fundraising, not knowing when it could burst. And so the guy said, hey, what happens if your fundraising runs out? And we said, well, we'll call them new fundraisers. We'll do new campaigns. I mean, this was our legit answer. He goes, that's not enough. Like, I'm saying, like, what if, like, your fundraising runs out? How are you going to continue to serve alongside of these people? And, and, and we said, we don't know. What is their advice? And their advice to us was find a corporation to back your nonprofit so it has a sustainable piece to it in fundraising or build a for-profit of your own that can support the nonprofit. Mm. So we came back home, we prayed about it, we talked about it, and that's where Generous was born. Generous was born, and it's now my full-time job. It's the company that I am uh, the CEO of. I, I operate day-to-day. Um, Generous exists to sell products with stories behind them, mostly coffee. So we sell specialty-grade coffee, so it's the best coffee in the world that you can find that's traceable and single origin from nine different countries. We sell T-shirts made out of plastic bottles um, that are created by women in Haiti, who are paid 15 bucks an hour plus retirement, insurance, time off, and an air-conditioned facility. Unheard of in Haiti. And, and what we want to do is sell these products and build on more products that have stories behind them so that we can donate to the nonprofit. And so right now we donate 10% of all revenue to Humanity Hope United. 
uh, that will always be that way. They'll always be our main beneficiary. Our hope is that we can fully fund the operational expenses of Humanity and Hope United. Amazing. So every donor dollar can go to the ground. And then every quarter we have 5 to 7% that's donated to up to our discretion to other nonprofits cool. or social causes. That's really cool. So, yeah, Generous Nowadays is a platform and a marketplace to say we want to be as generous as possible with our time and with our resources and with our, our, with our services so that we can actually make a tangible difference in the world for good. Wow. Is that energizing for you? Is that exciting? Does it feel good to, first of all, be starting something? Because Riley yeah. beat you on the first one. Yeah. But also to be, you know, So I'll join him the on the second. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. It, it really is. It That's is, awesome. It is energizing. It, I think the best part is it feels purposeful. Uh, so it's not always easy, good. right? You're still yeah. operating a company that oh. donates a lot of our margin. There's there's some business Terrifying. issues that, str- that we struggle with. <laughs> um but it's energizing in the sense of it's, it gives me a purpose, again, way outside myself. For me and my full-time job, I, I'm, I'm just a little vessel along with a bunch of other little vessels uh, that help push this forward. And, and you're familiar with this. But this doesn't exist, and it's not successful unless we have people participating in it with us. So if we have customers and consumers actually purchasing our products who are saying, hey, I'll pay maybe a buck more for a bag of coffee because I know it's going to something good. I know it's going mm. to something that's actually making a difference. So this is a movement. This is a group of people that I hope join together to say we're going to do something good in the purest of ways and buy products that we're already consuming that's really good products just because we want to see the world become a better place. And I get to be a part of that. I get to see it every day. Mm. I get to wake up and answer the emails, answer the phone calls, plan our next you know, fundraising trips. And this gets to be my job. That's pretty cool. That's so cool. And I, I just want to say that I think that you've been able to build a community around generosity because you have modeled for people what generosity looks like. Because you have a platform where it would have been so easy for you to just do the bare minimum of a famous person, the bare minimum of somebody with influence or money, but you took things above and beyond. And so you don't have to respond to this, but I just want you to know that I think that you're modeling that well, and that's why this is working. Well, thank you. Uh, I, I do appreciate that um, a lot, and it means a ton to hear because sometimes you 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 know you forget the, to even compliment yourself sometimes. Yeah. I, I but I believe this too, and it would it would go without saying. I I trust Jesus enough to when He gives a command to love others um, and to serve others that if I do it, it's gonna be beneficial for me also personally, <laughs> selfishly. Um, I get a lot of joy out of it, yeah. just like most do from serving. But I, I have to trust Jesus enough to know when he calls me to to serve well and to serve intentionally and to give up everything, in quotes, um, for his kingdom, if I do it, like, good stuff's happening, and it is. I get to say it with you. Like, we're, you're not sitting here talking <laughs> about The Bachelor. Like, there, there's no shot if I'm The Bachelor that I'm at Plywoods, first off, that I'm sitting down with you talking about life, talking about this kind of stuff. God has been really good. And not just in this like fluffy way that's like, yeah, God's good. This is all part of his plan. Mm. No, there's been intentional steps to take to get here. But God has been good in the sense of when he, he said, hey, if you serve others and you love others well, good things happen. Like life, life makes more sense. Um, for me, at least in my faith journey and what I believe, um, based on that commandment, life has made more sense. I'm loving this. This is so fun. I want to talk for like 10 more hours, but I feel like uh, that would cross a line. And so we got to wrap up at some point. And so maybe I want to just ask this for people who they want to lean into generosity. They want their lives to feel like, you know, whatever it is, whatever their platform is, they're making a difference, but maybe they weren't on the bachelor. Maybe, Mm -hmm. I mean, if anybody was on the bachelor and you're listening to this and enjoying this conversation, you should uh, reach out. Uh, But for people who weren't on the bachelor, and who, who maybe don't feel like they have the same access to resources, fans, audiences, et cetera, what kind of advice would you give them on leaning into generosity in their own yeah. lives? Well, I mean, first off, we've got to start by saying it does fe- feel daunting, I'm yeah. sure, for anybody out there. Second off, uh, you know, I think it's a very clear, uh, and it's, it's an easy statement for me to make, but first off, we're all the same. I just happen to have been given a platform, right? So let's take the platform out of it. I, I would love to tell everybody out there, and what, what we try to do is, and because we mean it, is you, every person listening to this is important. They were created, and my buddy says this perfectly, on purpose and for a purpose. And so if you're created on purpose and for a purpose, your purpose is incredibly important to 
the lives of others. There's, there's a great parable, not to continue to make this so, super Christianese because I, I really don't try to live life like that, but there's a great parable out there that p- depicts this perfectly for me is where Jesus left the 99 to pursue the one that had gone away from the herd. And I'm just thinking if one life can be changed through anybody's pursuit of purpose, then that makes it worth it. Mm. That makes your story incredible. That makes your role in this world important. Um, and so to do that, Here's the situation. If you're listening, you're important. You're cared for, you're loved, and you're supported, but you are important. The next piece, is there something in your heart that's tugging, that's saying, I need to fix this. This is an injustice that I can't see, that I can't sleep at night, or I can't deal with, that makes me angry like it made me angry. I wasn't smart enough to process what to do about (laughs) it. You probably are. So there's something out there that's making you angry. We all have it, right? If there's something out there that's making you angry, Go fight it. Go fight that injustice in, in the most loving, the most healthy, and the most, most service-filled way. Go fight that injustice. Lay your own insecurities down. Lay your own ego down. Uh, lay your own priorities down uh, at the feet of this injustice so that you can be a part of fixing the problem. And when you do that, first off, we need you. We all need you. Second off, when you do that, I will promise you life makes more sense. It has more meaning. And it opens yourself up to a world that a lot of us never knew existed if we didn't do it that way. Um, so that would be that would be my command, I guess. Um, my calling would just be, if you're listening to this, just know that you are needed. We don't get told that enough. Like, you are absolutely needed. Don't sit there and say, I don't have something to offer. Don't sit there and, and say, I don't have a platform to speak on. Don't sit there, sit there and say, I don't even have the brains because I don't have the brains either. Step out and do something about what makes you angry. And and man, this world could be a cool place. Man, Ben is such a fun guy to talk to. I loved this conversation. I'm especially so inspired by Ben's passion to do something about the things that make him angry. And I want to lean into this so much more with my own life and pay attention to the things that make me want to get off of the bleachers and give myself over to a cause bigger than myself. I think we all have the opportunity to lean into that. I love how many times Ben reiterates this idea that you are needed. What if we actually believed that? I wholeheartedly believe that not only does Ben do a fantastic job of empowering others to become more generous with their time, resources, and skills, but he also models this really well in his own life. He is walking the walk, and he's not just talking. I love that and deeply respect him for it. If you're not already following Ben on social media, of course, you can find him on Instagram and Twitter and follow along with his life and the incredible work that he's up to. And like we mentioned in our conversation, Ben is actively working as the CEO of Generous, a company that sells purposeful products and then donates 100% of the profits back to nonprofits like Humanity and Hope United that are creating sustainable change. The work is so important and they also, they sell some really great coffee. I, I actually don't drink coffee, but my wife and my team at Good 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 have informed me that they really, really like it. So visit generousmovement.com. You can find out more, subscribe, shop, and hopefully participate in the work that they're doing. You can also find out more about Humanity and Hope United's mission, history, current projects at humanityandhope.org. If you're new to Sounds Good, we would love for you to stick around. You'd also love my conversation with Britt Nilsson from season 19 of The Bachelor. It was actually one of our very first episodes, and it was so fascinating. And outside of Bachelor World, I would also highly recommend our episode with Dr. Terroride Trent. She's an incredibly inspiring woman from Zimbabwe, and she was named Oprah's favorite guest of all time. I'm not kidding. She is incredible. You can find both of these episodes and more than 100 other episodes by searching for Sounds Good wherever you listen to podcasts. Make sure that you hit subscribe to keep on getting more inspiring episodes with incredible people delivered to your phone while you sleep. And for those of you who are regular listeners to the podcast, or if this one just hit you so well, please consider supporting the show by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. This podcast is created by me, Brandon Harvey, as a part of Good, 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 
a community that believes in the power of celebrating good news and becoming good news. Chad Michael Snavely and the team at CM Studio edit and mix the show, and Christy Karenbrock offers production support. You can get lots of hopeful stories on social media by following us everywhere at goodgoodgoodco. If you follow Good 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 on Instagram, you might just see a boomerang of Ben jumping into my arms. It is pure magic. <laughs> oh my gosh. Again, that's Good 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 CO. In addition to telling hopeful stories here on Sounds Good and on social media, we also make a beautiful print newspaper called The Good Newspaper. It's filled entirely with good news and it looks great on your coffee table. It comes with a poster to hang on your wall and it's the perfect piece of inspiration. Our newest issue, issue five, is officially available for pre-order. Check out the cover and get issue five at shop.goodgoodgood.co. And on that note, that is a wrap for this week's episode. Go out and remember that you are needed. Pay attention to the things that make you angry and give yourself over to the fight against injustice for the betterment of the world. Sound good?